Nathan has an understanding of something that a lot of us don't get in life, as we should, about God's greatness and His power, which actually enables us to be all that He designed us to be. Some of us get kind of stuck on ourselves. I I can't believe I'm going to ask this question, but are you old enough to remember the commercials, I Want to Be Like Mike? Remember those commercials? I, I would imagine most of you. How long ago was that? Not too long. It's one of those Gatorade commercials where Michael Jordan's sailing through the air doing great things, but he's also playing with children. And adults and children alike are singing, I want to be like Mike. If I could be like Mike. I guess after his acceptance speech to the Hall of Fame a couple of weeks ago, though, um, that sentiment is not so widespread anymore. I don't know if you heard about it, but Michael Jordan was inducted into the Hall of Fame and he basically used his... Um, what, 25-minute speech to to call out every enemy he'd ever had and how this person motivated me because he cut me from the team and this person said I couldn't guard him and this person and on and on and on. He just basically said, I'd really like to thank you for making me who I am. And he was basically calling everybody else a jerk. I mean, his speech seemed to me at least petty at best and vindictive at worst. And I think a lot of people's Perceptions of of Michael Jordan just kind of went tumbling down that day. Who in your life has let you down? Well, wait a minute, we don't have time for that. Who, Who in your life has not let you down? I would imagine that your list of those who have disappointed you corresponds directly with the number of years that you have lived on this earth. I mean, you live long enough, and and one by one, almost everybody disappoints you to the point that you almost come to despair, to the point of despair, like, who can I trust anymore? And, And then we end up letting other people down too. We're disappointed with ourselves because of how we have disappointed someone else. So what do we do? I mean, do we just give up hope on all of humanity? Well, no, but we need to make sure that our ultimate hope and trust is in the one who will never let us down. That's the, that's the point of our text this morning. First Peter chapter one, verses 13 to 21. I plan to go through the end of the chapter, but as the staff, we were talking about it this week, we jettisoned that idea pretty quickly. It's just too much in this great book to, to be Tied to a calendar. We want to make sure that we get everything that God has for us in this text. Uh, the truth in last week's message was, was quite a comfort to my soul as, as we talked the first time of many times is in, in the book of First Peter about suffering and about God's comfort in suffering. And just in preparing that message, my heart was comforted. Uh, this week was a different story. I was deeply convicted this week as I prepared the message. It's a tough message. So just as we're told in the first verse of today's text, we need to prepare our minds for action, even as we read the text, which is First Peter 1, 13 to 21. And if you would, please stand and I will read that for us. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Our Father, time and again, when our faith and hope has been in flesh and blood, whether it be someone else or in ourselves, we have come up mighty short and at times hurt deeply. Father, this morning we pray that you would move in our hearts to put our faith and hope in you and that we would, Father, in some way reflect and radiate the light and the glory that is from above. It's not from within us, but it's from above. Speak to our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Well, if you were at home group this past week, and if, if you are a student here uh, at Campbell and you're not in a home group, please let me encourage you to get involved. If you're a, a family here at, at Grace Community Church, please get involved in a home group. If you were there last week, you explored the pattern that is so often seen in the New Testament uh, writer letters to the to the church. The New Testament writers would often, well, always talk about who we are in Jesus, and then they would move to application. Now, here's what you are. Here's who you are in in your relationship with Jesus. And because of that, this is how you should live. Paul often used up to half the letter. In fact, the book of Romans, almost the first three-fourths is is basically information telling us who we are in Jesus. And then he has these three or four power-packed chapters about how we should live based on who we are in Jesus Christ. Peter took considerably less time to establish who we are in Jesus before he moved to the practical application. He he said most of what he's going to say in the first 12 verses of chapter 1, though there are some very important and encouraging verses later in the chapter about who we are in Jesus, particularly in chapter 2. We'll get to that in a few weeks. In verse 13, though, he makes the transition from our position in Jesus to the expectations because of that that God has for his children. That's why the first word in the verse uh, is therefore. Now, most of the, the verbs in this next section are imperatives in the Greek. Greek verbs are said to have moods as well as tense and voice. They also have moods. The indicative mood basically is giving you information. It's indicating something. This is something you need to know about who God is, about who you are in your relationship with him. And there again... Paul, in in most of the first half of his letters, the first half he used almost all indicative verbs. Then he moves to imperatives. An imperative is like a command. I mean, think of the way we use the word imperative in, in English. It's imperative that you cross the street. Uh, look both ways before you cross the street. It's imperative that you get your shots before you eat at this particular restaurant. Something like that, you know. I did not say the cafeteria on campus. I did not say that. I didn't say marsh banks. Actually, the food is good if you just eat there every once in a while. Um, 
like I do. But it's imperative that you follow the guidelines when you're filling out your tax forms. Don't go astray when you're doing that. You could get in trouble. God's imperatives are always preceded by the word, therefore, indicating that a reason for these commands has already been given. Does that make sense? I mean, you know what it's like when you you go to someone's house and there are rules that are given without any explanation whatsoever. You know, you say, if you're in my house, you're going to do such and such. Well, God doesn't do that. He doesn't just start pointing the finger saying, do this, do this. He tells us this wonderful news about who we are in Jesus. And then he says, therefore, this is what God expects of you as you live your life for the Lord. So Peter says, on the basis of the fact that God the Father has chosen you as his child, and since Jesus' sacrifice and the sanctification of the Spirit guarantees you a home in heaven, a heaven that'll never, a home that'll never be touched with sin or pain or, or, or trauma of any kind because of all of that, then set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you looked at this passage as a whole and and somebody said what's the big idea in this particular text you would probably say well be holy because God is holy no this is it right here this is what he's saying set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ there are a couple of words in this short phrase that that need a bit of explanation in the New Testament, hope is not always used in the way that we use it. In fact, it's, it's never used in the way that we use it. When we say, well, I hope something will happen, that means I'm, it may come to pass or it may not. I hope Carolina will beat State in football this year. I'm not, I'm not convinced that they will after yesterday, after the way both teams looked yesterday. I'm not convinced they will, but I hope they do. In the New Testament, when we talk about hope, it's a certain expectation that what has been promised will come to pass. I am absolutely certain that this is going to happen. And hope, almost always in the New Testament, when you see it, you can put my home in heaven, my inheritance, the future that is waiting for me. That's my hope. And that hope impacts the way that I live greatly, or certainly it should. Grace is another important word for us to consider. You know, in the rest of this passage, we're about to receive several strong commands about how we're to live our lives. But grace in this passage talks about our salvation and the inheritance that we've been given. It's important to remember that God's imperatives not only are always preceded by an explanation of why he expects this of us, but they're always also rooted in grace. God's grace forgives us for our sins, but God's grace also gives us the ability to obey His commands. According to verse 13, the way that we set our hope on God's grace is through a disciplined mind. Preparing your minds for action could be literally translated, bind up the loins of your mind. Now, when's the last time you heard somebody tell you to bind up the loins of your mind? I mean, you know, hey, Peter, bind up the loins of your mind, man. You just We don't use that phrase, but it was a phrase in, in the first century, a Semitic idiom that uh, referred to the 
act of gathering your robes together when you were going to run and tucking them into your belt so that they were tight around your legs and that you could participate in vigorous activity or that you could move on down the road if you needed to. Those robes would get in the way and trip you otherwise. And that's what he's doing. He's saying, get ready. Basically, we would say today, roll up your sleeves. Get ready to work. This is not going to be something that's a walk in the park. You need to be serious about what you're doing. It's what this life is, a vigorous activity. And at the same time, be sober-minded. Be serious about this life of grace. Have a disciplined mind about the life of grace. In other words, be intentional about living a life that pleases God. Now, let me ask you this week. Just think back this week. How intentional have you been about living a life that pleases God? I mean, when you've been in that canoe, have you been working against the stream? Or have you just been letting it take you wherever it goes? That's the tendency to just kind of drift along and apply a few little biblical principles here and there in our lives. But he's saying, roll up your sleeves, get ready, discipline yourself in this life of grace. The life that we're called to live is more than a moral life that reflects strong personal values. There are a lot of very moral people in our nation who are not godly. The Christian life is a godly life that reflects God's character completely, fully. And we begin with obedience, the obedience of a child who adores his father and wants to be like him. You remember what that was like growing up, wanting to be like your dad? Those of you who have children, your children want to be like you. That can be depressing at times when we know who we are and our lack of ability to be what we want to be. But if we were perfect like our Heavenly Father, it wouldn't be such a bad thing. God is perfect. And so He's calling for us as children with a perfect Father to look up with that adoring kind of a desire to be like the One who has given us life. As obedient children, we're called to move beyond slavery to passions that previously controlled us. I mean, to live according to God's design rather than the acceptable system of the world sets us apart from those who are around us. You ever had someone say, oh, don't say say so-and-so around Susan. I mean, you know how she is. She doesn't use that kind of language. Or, 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 Or Bill wouldn't be in favor of cheating these guys. So let's, you know, don't don't talk about it around him. Christians in the first century were very distinct. I mean, people were religious in that day. There were a lot of people who were religious. And in fact, most people worshipped multiple gods. But much of their worship was rooted in sensual pagan practices. Uh, Christ followers were different because of their willingness to to follow the type of commands that uh, Peter gave in verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You didn't know better back then. You know better now. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God's call 
was to live differently, not just to practice religion differently. He, he wasn't saying, now, you used to offer sacrifices to Artemis, now offer sacrifices to me. I am the big God on the block now. It was different than that. He's calling us to live as people whose lives have been genuinely transformed. We're different than we used to be. Now, when Peter refers to the Old Testament, he does this a lot in his book. Even if he's not directly quoting an Old Testament verse, he's he's making allusions to Old Testament references over and over and over in this book. And it's interesting because most of the people he was writing to were Gentiles. They weren't Jewish believers who were familiar. But he accomplished several things when he was when he was summarizing as many as four verses from the book of Leviticus and says, as it is written, be you holy because I am holy. Uh, there were four different places in the book of Leviticus and he sort of, sort of made a composite rendering of what the Lord was saying back then. But, but the first thing that happened in, in, in him using that Old Testament reference was that it assured the, the Jewish Christians that the, that the God they had served and worshipped previously was the same God that they were now serving and worshipping. They understood him more fully. God had now revealed himself as the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But he was still the same God of the Old Testament. We studied this in the, uh, the spring. We talked about the Trinity. We looked at lots of verses about the Trinity. And it's very clear that the New Testament writers understood God to be one God, even though he's Father, Son, and Spirit. And so he's telling these Jewish Christians, same God. He's also telling the Gentile Christians that the Old Testament scriptures were now holy to them as well as to the Jews. He was saying, this is God's word. And it speaks to our lives today. In fact, you would be stunned at how much of the New Testament is simply a re-quoting or is quoting the Old Testament. It's not rewriting them, it's just quoting the Old Testament. Another thing that happened in Peter's use of the Old Testament was that it indicated that God's expectations had not changed for his covenant people. He expects the church to be holy just as the, just in the same way that he expected the nation of Israel to be holy. Now, Peter and all the New Testament writers recognized very clearly that, that Jesus' sacrifice had put an end to the sacrificial systems. No more lambs needed to be sacrificed. He's the perfect Lamb of God. They also recognized that the ceremonial laws of cleansing and the dietary restrictions were no longer in play. But God's moral character as revealed in the law, especially like, for instance, the Ten Commandments, is still very much in play today. He expects us to live in the ways that He has always expected His people to live. So there's a call for God's moral character to be reflected in and radiated through Christ followers. But I thought salvation and and sanctification or spiritual growth were, were all of grace. Indeed, and in fact, grace puts us in a position to live holy lives that the law could never affect. Peter's not calling for perfection. Last week we saw in chapter 1, verse 2, that he's got obedience to Christ and sprinkling from the blood of Christ in the same breath. And he's basically saying what we learn in all of Scripture, that, that, that Christians, even Christians, need to confess their sins because we get dirty in this world. Our feet get dirty. Just like Jesus told Peter, I, I need to wash your feet. Not all of you, but your feet get dirty. We need to confess our sins. First John 1, 9 
tells us that if we are confessing our sins, continually confessing our sins, then God is continually forgiving us and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. There's that ongoing need for confession in our lives. And grace enables us to do that in a way that we couldn't before recognize our sin. We just always were constantly, I'm just going to do better. I'm going to do better. Well, no, we need God's forgiveness for sin. He's telling us to live holy lives, though, in, in, in the face of the temptation that we face every single day in our lives. And as a motivation for us to trust God to enable us to overcome Temptation. Peter tells us in verse 17 that we're accountable to God as judge and that we are to pass the time of our exile or living in this life where we don't really belong in fear. Not in fear of the world who says, you're so different, I don't like it. Your religion is different from mine and I'm going to do something about it. Not in fear of those people, but in fear of God. I got to tell you that verse 17 is not the kind of verse a lot of us want to embrace. And in fact, if we're not careful, we'll we'll do our absolute best to soften it. We want to ease our consciences and, and, and really make God more to our liking. But Peter is writing to Christ followers and he says that he, God, will judge us. His children and his judgment, as you expect, will be perfect. It won't be impartial. He won't bring the hammer down on some and let others kind of slide. And I imagine a lot of us feel like one or the other, that God constantly puts the hammer down on me. Or, well, you know, I've been doing this and nothing's happening, so it must be all right. God's not judging me. This judgment that he's talking about is a here and now judgment. I would like to say that it's the judgment seat of Christ when we get there, but it is a here and now judgment in response to a sinful lifestyle. Now, sometimes, in fact, a lot of times, God uses suffering to build us, to grow us. Professor Woodruff and I were talking a little while ago, and he was talking about how God's grace is seen so clearly in suffering. His his love for us is seen even as we suffer. The pain lets us know that we're alive, and there's just so much that's wrapped up in that. We'll see over and over in the book of 1 Peter that God has a purpose in our suffering. And, and, And it's not just physical suffering. It can be emotional, mental, all kinds of ways that we suffer economically, And God uses that to build us. And it has nothing to do with God's judgment on our lives. But some suffering does, according to verse 17. It's one of the reasons it's so important to heed the Apostle Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 11.31. If we would judge ourselves, then we would not be judged. I mean, remember when you were growing up and your parents would start... They just look at you because you've done something. They look at you and you say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, I, I, I did it. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. In other words, when you sin, confess and repent of your sin and ask God to lead you into a life of holiness. Now, a lot of people would reject this interpretation of verse 17, preferring instead to see God as a loving father who always sues us and understands that we're frail humans who are going to mess up. And that's all true. It's true. God is very patient with us. He's way more patient with us than we are with other people. 
And He's a loving Father and He cares deeply for us and He gives us grace and mercy. But it's also true that He disciplines His children. And that truth is seen over and over and over in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 John 5 tell us that this is such a serious relationship that we have with God that if we go too far, not only will He cause us to suffer in one way or another, He'll kill us. He'll take us out. I don't ever, I cannot remember when the last time I said that from, especially in a sermon was. I don't like to think about it, but it's true. And the truth that is being expounded here in 1 Peter 1 is seen in a whole lot of places in Scripture. And, and, and it, though it's a sobering reality, we have to come face to face with it. But if we're seeking to please our Father as obedient children, we have little to fear along those lines. We'll have a respect for Him that will keep us from just living any way that we want to, just as we respected our our earthly fathers, and and feared their discipline. Not that we were afraid of them as human beings, but, you know, we didn't... The the most horrible sound to me when I was a child was my father's belt sliding through his pants, you know. Wow, because I knew what was coming. And I did a lot to avoid that. I I didn't do. I probably should have gotten it a lot more than I, I did, but... You know, we can greatly minimize the Lord's discipline by living holy lives and by repenting of sin when we do sin or when God brings it to our attention, when we know and we've done something, we've known it, or, or God brings something to our attention. It's easy for our motives to get mixed up, isn't it? And, and, and we do things and then later we, we realize, I, I shouldn't have done that. So when it comes up, confess it, repent it, repent of it, and move on. Well, Peter doesn't uh, dwell on the negative. He doesn't stay there saying, you just got to do this or or you're going to be in big trouble. In verse 18, he reminds his readers, and that includes us, that Jesus paid the highest price imaginable to redeem us from our old ways. In fact, we're told that Jesus ransomed us from our Feudal ways from before. He ransomed us. He, he paid a price to purchase us, to redeem us, to bring us out of that slavery to sin, that, that place of condemnation and that slavery to sin in this life. Jesus' blood paid the price that God acquires of all of us because of our sin. Since Jesus was sinless, God the Father allowed and even ordained that His death pay for my sin. His blood be shed in place of mine. And His blood cleanses all who confess their sins, repent of their sins, and, and place their trust in Jesus' death as, as payment for them. To repent doesn't mean, well, okay, I've been doing the wrong things. I'll start doing the, the right things. I'm going to... We used to say, turn over a new leaf. I can't tell you how many times I tried to do that. Didn't nothing happen. I mean, I was right back to where I was. But when I said, oh, Lord, I recognize that I am the sinner that you've called me out to be. I am who you say I am. And I'm sorry. Please forgive me for living my life any way that I want. I give my life to you. And I believe that Jesus died for me. In that moment, my life was changed instantly. Now, believe me. I am nowhere close to where I wish I were 
as a follower of Jesus, but you can't know the change in my life that he affected. I, I didn't. I tried, but wasn't happening. Have you ever done that? Have you ever asked God to forgive you of your sins and placed your trust in Jesus that he died for you? Please don't leave here today without doing that. Well, another motivation to live holy lives is activated when we recall the way that, that the way we lived in the past was futile or useless. In Jesus, there is great purpose and meaning in life. I suppose one of the greatest complaints I hear from, from Christians is, I, I just don't feel my life is really counting for anything. I mean, I'm so busy at work. I'm so distracted by so many things. Or the young mothers especially, mothers of, of young children say, I, you know, I, my whole life revolves around them and they're just things that I want to do. And sometimes they have the perspective that this is a great privilege that God has called me to. But sometimes there's guilt because it's like I can't do the things that I used to do and I just feel like I, I should be doing them. But I, I, I guess I should be over here. You know what? If you concentrate on living a holy life, the holy life that you've been called to live, then every single thing that you do is filled with purpose. God is the one who is sovereign and in control of our lives, and He sometimes He keeps us out of the game. Sometimes we got to come to the sidelines to recover from an injury, or sometimes there's some something else that needs to be accomplished. But He He puts us on the bench sometimes. But if we are living lives that seek to please Him, then everything is filled with purpose in our lives, whether it feels like it or not. You know, the first century Christians stood out in that pagan society because of their holy lives. I mean, people thought they were peculiar. You guys are weird. We live in a post-Christian era here in America, but there's enough of the past, especially in the South, in most cases to keep us from being ostracized at work or in the neighborhood where people just condemn us. I mean, I, my neighborhood... The neighborhood where I live in Fuqua has a little gathering this afternoon, and I plan to go to it. And when people that I don't know, some people have moved into the area, and when people that I don't know find out that I'm a, a, a pastor, a teaching pastor at a church or an elder at a church, they're going to say, wow, that's, hey, that's great, nice to meet you, because they respect that position. Man, alive. Many places in the world, they find out that you're a minister, you're dead. You're certainly ostracized. You're out of touch. And in the first century, these people were persecuted because of their different lives. We don't want to stand out, though. I mean, fact is, we want to blend in with others so that they can see how normal Christians are. I'm going to be tempted to do that this afternoon. You know, just to say, hey, I'm just like you. No big deal. I mean, I'm... And then, you know, they'll start hanging out with me and I'll sneak the gospel in. You know, that's, that's how we do it today. We don't want to stand out. We want to be just like, we don't want to be different. Newsflash, a life that is lived to please God is different. It's not ordinary. It's not a moral life, remember? It's a godly life. We're called to be holy. And holiness speaks to God's 
character. It's a, it's a, it's a commitment to purity and to all that is important to God, which is found in His Word. Now look, I could list all the sins, but you know them. You know what God is calling you away from and to. And if you're going to please God, people are going to notice. And they're going to think you're a fanatic. I, 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 absolutely, there's no way you can live a life that pleases God without at least somebody close to you thinking you're just absolutely nuts. You've lost it. You're a fanatic. It won't be easy to represent God's full character in this life. Remember, we don't belong here. We're foreigners. We're exiles. But if we do, if that is our pursuit, we will live lives filled with purpose every moment of every day. Whether we're interacting with the masses or with the few. If we spend much of our time enjoying the pleasures of our old life or the pleasures that this world has to offer today, we'll be as useless now as we were then. Life will be as futile and as much of a waste now as it was then. And that's what he's saying. Don't look. Remember. Remember. It's different now. There's purpose for you now. Living like Jesus. And Jesus deserves more than that from us. He shed his blood that we might have the incredible salvation and inheritance that we've considered these two weeks And we owe Him our obedience, our adoration. We owe Him our very lives. Now, I know for some of you, there's just an absolute war raging inside of you. You, There's a part of you that very much wants to live for this God and to please Him. But there's the old nature clamoring for control and, and saying, do this, do this. You say, no, that's the, the passions of my former life and I'm different now. God, Jesus has made me a new creation. Yeah, but do this, do this, do this. And this war is raging. And Romans 7 talks about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a natural part of our spiritual growth where there's a fight for control inside of us. The old man and the new man. The problem is we can always justify some of this old nature. The activities, the attitudes, and the, and the behavior of the old. And there's always somebody will agree with you. It's like, oh, look, you don't have to. Good grief, just because you love Jesus doesn't mean that you can't do this. That's Come on, that's silly. And you say, you're right. Okay, I'll just, you know, I'll live that way. You can always find someone to agree with you. That's probably not so much your struggle, though. Most of you struggle, and that you desire to please God. But you don't know how. Because the pull, the urges of the old passions and the pull towards sin is just too great. Well, there's great news in the last two verses of our text. We sang about this. Once again, the songs are just perfect application of the Scripture. It is given today. Jesus' resurrection enables us to do the one thing that more than any other will enable us to live a holy life, and that is to believe. We believe for our salvation, but we believe for our sanctification, our spiritual growth also. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who God raised him, the Son, from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So we've come full circle in our text and it's all about belief. Set your hope on the grace that is to be given you. Believe that God will do for you that which you absolutely can't do for yourself. At the very beginning of Peter's letter, we're told that God chose us to be His children before the world ever was created. And now we're told that His plan of redemption through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was also planned before the world began. By the way, don't entertain any thoughts whatsoever that God doesn't know what's happening on the earth until it happens. I mean, it's a crazy idea that it has gained some popularity within... I suppose Christian circles, it, I, 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 how can you read Scripture and think that God didn't know? He, before the world ever began, this plan was in motion. It's, it's a way that some people use to try to explain all the suffering and evil in the world. Well, God didn't know and He's just responding. Taking Him a long time to get His act together in certain places of the world if that's the case. I mean, that's just, it's, it's absurd. God is sovereign. And he even, we were told last week that some of our suffering is necessary. In other words, his hand is involved even in the suffering. And it's doing a good thing for us. He's sovereign and absolutely in control. He's never taken by surprise by events, whether they be personal nature or, or, or worldwide. And that's the kind of God that you can trust. He builds, in fact, trust into your life. And sometimes... It's through suffering. I mean, sometimes we suffer and we think, I mean, we just fall to our knees and say, No, I can't handle this. And yet God is using the very thing to focus your trust on Him. And belief, trust in the sovereign God of the universe is the only way we will ever be able in our lives to reflect His character. It's the only hope we have for holiness. I mean, how how ridiculous does this sound? Be holy because I'm holy. Be like me. We can't be like God. Apart from His work in our lives. But as we believe all that He tells us in His Word, and by the way, next week, a lot of application about God's Word, much more so than today. Then, our lives are transformed into the image of Jesus. Let's ask God to give us trusting hearts. And let's believe His Word as it comes to us. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, You've called us to do the impossible. You've called us to be holy in the same way that You are. You recognize, or You've already told us, what we knew to be true, that we will continue to sin as long as we live this life of exile until we are perfected. We already have salvation, but we're going to be saved in a way that we have not yet been saved. So much as that we read about in these coming weeks will be already not yet. Already we have these blessings, but not anything close to what we will. 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for Jesus to come quickly. And may we quickly, as you delay your coming, yield to you. May we pledge our allegiance to you in in obedience. And we do so believing what you have said about us and about your power in our lives in this world. And Father, as we receive this benevolence offering that we do at the end of every month that will um, encourage and, and strengthen those who are in need, we pray that we would give with glad hearts and recognize it's part of our obedience, as KJ has already talked about, to give. We love you and submit ourselves to you again. In Jesus' name, amen.